welcome to the AK-47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexander Kollontai. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I'm a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. I'm officially starting season two of this podcast. I'm over halfway through the 47 selections that I initially thought that I would read and record, and I'm going to try to get better at posting these more regularly now that the summer is over and the semester has begun and my time is a little bit more regulated with less travel. Today, I'm going to start what will be a series of episodes reading Alexandra Kolontai's 1926 memoir called the Autobiography of a Sexually Emancipated Communist Woman. Now, this is one of the more fun pieces, much more personal pieces of Alexandra Kolontai's writing. It's actually fairly short for an autobiography, but it gives you a really good sense of her as a person and of her background and the things that influenced her growing up. Uh, The version that I'll be reading is the one that has all of the crossed out and deleted and censored parts of it added back in. It was written in 1926, already when Stalin was in power. And she was obviously dealing with a lot of censorship. And I think it's really interesting to read this because when she wrote it, she was already 54. So she was very much a grown woman who had been in revolutionary activities for a really long time. Lenin had just died. She has been sent abroad uh, as a diplomat to sort of get her out of the Soviet Union because she's seen as a bit of a troublemaker because she joined the workers' opposition and actually sort of the left opposition to Lenin. And she was rewarded by being sent away, essentially, first to Norway. Eventually, uh, she was in Mexico for a little while, and then she settled down as the ambassadress to Sweden, where she stayed for quite a long time. And she was very important in the Second World War. She helped negotiate a peace between Finland and the Soviet Union. She was twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for her work as an ambassadress and diplomat. But this is sort of at this moment in 1926 when the Soviet Union has survived the revolution and has survived the civil war and the famine. It has survived the death of Lenin and Stalin is taking power. And Kolontai is sort of taking a moment to step back and reflect on her life and reflect on the goals of the revolution and the things that she still hopes to accomplish. Here is part one of the autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman. The aims and worth of my life. Nothing is more difficult than writing an autobiography. What should be emphasized? Just what is of general interest? It is advisable above all to write honestly and dispense with any of the conventional introductory protestations of modesty. For if one is called upon to tell about one's life so as to make the events that made it what it became useful to the general public, it can mean only that one must have already wrought something positive in life, accomplished a task that people recognize. Accordingly, it is a matter of forgetting that one is writing about oneself, of making an effort to abjure one's ego so as to give an account as objectively as possible of one's life in the making and of one's accomplishments. I intend to make this effort, but whether it will turn out successfully is something else again. 
At the same time, I must confess that, in a certain sense, this autobiography poses a problem for me. For by looking back while prying simultaneously into the future, I will also be presenting to myself the most crucial turning points of my being and accomplishments. In this way, I may succeed in setting into bold relief that which concerns the women's liberation struggle and further the social significance which it has. That I ought not to shape my life according to a given model, that I would have grown beyond myself in order to be able to discern my life's true line of vision was an awareness that was mine already in my youngest years. At the same time, I was also aware that in this way I could help my sisters to shape their lives, in accordance not with the given traditions, but with their own free choice to the extent, of course, that social and economic circumstances permit. I always believed that the time inevitably must come when woman will be judged by the same moral standards applied to man. For it is not her specific feminine virtue that gives her a place of honor in human society, but the worth of the useful mission accomplished by her, the worth of her personality as a human being, as citizen, as thinker, as fighter. Subconsciously, this motive was the leading force of my whole life and activity. To go my way, to work, to struggle, to create side by side with men, and to strive for the attainment of a universal human goal. For nearly 30 years, indeed, I have belonged to the communists. But at the same time, to shape my personal, intimate life as a woman according to my own will and according to the given laws of my nature. It was this that conditioned my line of vision, and in fact, I have succeeded in structuring my intimate life according to my own standards, and I make no secret of my love experiences any more than does a man. Above all, however, I never let my feelings, the joy or pain of love, take the first place in my life, inasmuch as creativity, activity, struggle always occupy the foreground. I just want to pause there for a second and to mention that that last section that I read where she's talking about being able to have a wild love life, essentially being a free woman and having had multiple partners, that part was initially censored from the manuscript because, of course, Alexandra Kolontai's views on free love had gone a little bit out of fashion and, in fact, had been quite derided by Lenin and then later Stalin. So I'll continue. I managed to become a member of the government cabinet, of the first Bolshevik cabinet in the years 1917-1918. I am also the first woman ever to have been appointed ambassadress, a post which I occupied for three years and from which I resigned of my own free will. Now, a little side note here, it turns out that actually she was only the third woman to have served as ambassador. Um, in the history of diplomatic service, but she didn't know that. She thought she was the first. There were actually two others, two other women who served briefly before her. This may serve to prove that women certainly can stand above the conventional conditions of the age. The world war, the stormy revolutionary spirit now prevalent in the world in all areas has greatly contributed to blunting the edge of the unhealthy, overheated double standard of morality. We are already accustomed not to make overly taxing demands, for example, on actresses and women belonging to the free professions in matters relating to their married life. 
Diplomacy, however, is a caste which more than any other maintains its old customs, usages, traditions, and above all, its strict ceremonial. The fact that a woman, a free single woman, was recognized in this position without opposition shows that the time has come when all human beings will be equally appraised according to their ability and their general human dignity. When I was appointed as Russian envoy to Oslo, I realized that I had thereby achieved a victory not only for myself, but for women in general, and indeed a victory over their worst enemy, that is to say, our conventional morality and conservative concepts of marriage. When on occasion I am told that it is truly remarkable that a woman has been appointed to such a responsible position, I always think to myself that in the final analysis, the principal victory as regards women's liberation does not lie in this fact alone. Rather, what is of a wholly special significance here is that a woman like myself, who has settled scores with a double standard and who has never concealed it, was accepted into a caste which to this very day staunchly upholds tradition and pseudo-morality. Thus, the example of my life can also serve to dispel the old goblin of the double standard also from the lives of other women. And this is a most crucial point of my own existence, which has a certain social psychological worth and contributes to the liberation struggle of working women. So I'll just pause again and say that that last section, again, was very heavily censored when this was published in 1926. Because, of course, Alexandra Kolontai is essentially saying, look, I was an unmarried woman with multiple known previous lovers, and it did not in any way create a problem for me in the diplomatic world, which is, as she points out, an extremely conservative world, especially at this period of time in world history. So Alexandra Kolontai was this, you know, for all intents and purposes, as far as other members of the diplomatic service was concerned, she was a sexual libertine. She was a free, unmarried woman, very highly educated, who spoke multiple languages, who was representing this new worker state. In some ways, it's quite interesting to think about her as the figurehead of the Soviet Union in this period of time. And she had been a minister. She had actually been the commissar of social welfare in the first cabinet. So she had achieved a lot of great things by the time she becomes ambassadress. But it's also worth mentioning here that she was older. As I said, she was you know, very worldly and well-educated. And many men found her not only attractive, but also quite charming and charismatic. And she was really a bit of an anomaly. And yet she was able to persevere. And, and as she points out in this passage, she is hopefully paving a way for women to be judged not in their relationship to the men in their lives, but as individuals themselves, as people with their own talents and ideas and visions and goals. And I think it's quite interesting to think about Alexandra Kolontai as the first single woman ambassadress in the history of the world. Because it's one thing to just be a woman, uh, you can be a married woman and achieve a career, but it's quite another thing to live your life in a way that is considered immoral for women to live their lives, as in having multiple male partners over the course of your life, having left your first husband and your small child behind in order to pursue revolutionary goals, 
And to then receive such a high commission to be a diplomatic envoy for this new worker state, it must have been incredibly impressive for the men who dealt with her in diplomatic service. And in fact, if you go back and you read newspaper reports, contemporaneous newspaper reports about Alexandra Kollontai, it turns out that people were just in awe of her because of her position as ambassadress, as a single woman. All right, I'm going to read one more section here. To avoid any misunderstanding, however, it should be said here that I am still far from being the type of the positively new women who take their experience as females with a relative lightness and, one could say, with an enviable superficiality, whose feelings and mental energies are directed upon all other things in life but sentimental love feelings. After all, I still belong to the generation of women who grow up at a turning point in history. Love, with its many disappointments, with its tragedies and eternal demands for perfect happiness, still played a very great role in my life, an all-too-great role. It was an expenditure of precious time and energy, fruitless and in the final analysis, utterly worthless. We, the women of the past generation, did not yet understand how to be free. The whole thing was an absolutely incredible squandering of our mental energy, a diminution of our labor power which was dissipated in barren emotional experiences. It is certainly true that we, myself as well as many other activists, militants, and working women contemporaries, we're able to understand that love was not the main goal of our life and that we knew how to place work at its center. Nevertheless, we would have been able to create and achieve much more had our energies not been fragmented in the eternal struggle with our egos and with our feelings for another. It was, in fact, an eternal defensive war against the intervention of the male into our ego, a struggle revolving around the problem complex work or marriage and love. We, the older generation, did not yet understand, as most men do, that work and the longing for love can be harmoniously combined so that work remains as the main goal of existence. Our mistake was that each time we succumbed to the belief that we had finally found the one and only in the man we loved, the person with whom we believed we could blend our soul, one who was ready fully to recognize us as a spiritual, physical force. But over and over again, things turned out differently. Since the man always tried to impose his ego upon us and adapt us fully to his purposes, Thus, despite everything, the inevitable inner rebellion ensued over and over again since love became a fetter. We felt enslaved and tried to loosen the love bond. And after the eternally recurring struggle with the beloved man, we finally tore ourselves away and rushed towards freedom. Thereupon, we were again alone, unhappy, lonesome, but free, free to pursue our beloved chosen ideal, work. So that's the end of part one of the autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman. And as you can see, she really is talking about her relationships here. When she gets sent off to diplomatic service, all of the men in her life 
uh, have the relationships have faded away. Um, her, obviously, she'd left her first husband, Colin Tai, very early. She had a really important relationship with Shlapnikov. Then she was married to Pavel Dubenka, but that relationship fell apart. So she is sort of mourning all of the energy that she put into these relationships. And of course, she's saying, look, I don't have anything to show for it now at 54. I'm alone, even though I'm ambassadress, I don't have the support of this, you know, ideal male partner, but it's really hard for me to have that ideal male partner because every single man that I have been with has this really big ego that tries to subjugate me and doesn't really understand me as the person, as the woman that I want to be. So this is an eternal struggle that Colin Ty faces and she is going to come back to this theme, I think again and again in this autobiography, but it's also really important to understand that she does in fact, you know, continue life as a single woman. She does not get married again. She has some lovers, but she is an independent woman until the day of her death, right before she turns 80. All right, so thanks so much for listening. This is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes and keep up the good fight. Yeah.